you've got to take the audience on this journey, but there's going to be minimum of five decision-making styles. Then there's four different types of companies. They call them company archetypes. Okay, so five decision-making styles, four companies. Then is my audience, the person I'm really trying to influence, are they introvert or extrovert? That's going to be a different type of presentation. Once you start looking at genders and how people identify, you start looking at, you know, five times four times two introvert, extrovert, male, female, plus, you know, times two. You look at minimum 80 versions of a story. Then you take on, do they like us? Do they not like us? Is it radical empathy, tactical empathy? 160 versions of the same story. Do you think there's one talk track for that deck? No, there's 160 versions of it. And as the communicator, my brain's on overdrive trying to look for the hooks, which is going to resonate with the audience, what's not. Like all of that intelligence is going to shape the rest of my presentation. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, today's question is the holy grail of influence. It's a question that any influencer that wants to make an impact with their words, ideas, or mission strives to answer. And it is this. How do you tell stories that change the way the world works? And my guest today, he has built his entire career around answering this very question and is still at the coalface, mining away at an answer that just continues to evolve. Jeremy Connell Waite is a man of many hats. He is a communications designer at IBM, where he coaches partners and executives to create compelling pitches and keynotes for purpose-driven brands. He also created IBM's communications thinking framework. Now, this is an incredible framework that's used across the world now to help future business leaders tell stronger purpose-driven stories on the screen, on stage, or in the boardroom. He has been voted the number one most influential person on Twitter for Big Data, top 30 most influential digital marketer in the world, and the third most influential social media marketer in the UK. In April of this year, Jeremy also founded the Earthshot Academy, a storytelling platform to help young professionals and business leaders who want to change the world with their words and ideas. And if all of that wasn't enough... He has also written four books, run his own agency, and worked for brands such as Nike, Vodafone, and Uber. Now, I first came across Jeremy after a good friend recommended that I check out his LinkedIn profile, where I just became immersed down a rabbit hole and blown away by the visual story maps that he was creating. These incredible, beautifully designed one pages that literally decoded on a single page the key structures, moments and secrets of some of the greatest storytellers of our time. Check it out. Believe me, you won't come up for air for hours. 
Now, he calls himself an industrial storyteller. I would say he's more of a storytelling scientist. In today's conversation, we dive into the key emotion you must evoke to get people to consider and actually take action on your ideas. Basically, the magic ingredient of influence. What elephants, wild geese, and black swans have to do with influence. You're just going to have to trust me on this one. And how to use them all within your storytelling. How to tailor your presentations or pitches so that they make maximum impact. And that includes staying flexible when it comes to what you want to say versus what they need to hear in order to take action. How much preparation a world-changing speech actually takes. Clue way more than you think. Finally, the keys to killing it in the first five minutes of your presentation, pitch or speech, and where you immediately need to go from there. Now for me, as many of you no doubt know, I could geek out on this topic for hours. You know, we all know and we have all experienced that one speech, one pitch, one presentation in front of the right people can have the power to change the entire course of what comes next for our business, our mission, our purpose, our project or our career. Now, understanding how to do that at the highest possible level, understanding how to make yourself felt and understood exactly as you intend matters perhaps honestly more so than any other skill that I know and I hope today's conversation gives you the tools the structure and the confidence to do exactly that now for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level don't forget hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook the influencer code I created it to cover the seven core areas and the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. Also, don't forget, hit subscribe and leave a rating for this podcast. It means an awful lot to us means you don't miss an episode and also helps us to continue to build our incredible Influence Insider community. We also read every review that you leave and I may have a few posted on my wall. On that note, sit back, cycle on, stride out, pencil at the ready and enjoy the epic brain power of the incredible Jeremy Connell Waite. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy Connell Waits. So nice to have you here. Great to be here. It's going to be fun. I want to. I'm going to kick off the way that I usually kick the podcast off, and that is to ask you what's one idea that's having a lot of impact on your thinking right now. That's really influencing the way that you perceive the world, the way that you approach certain situations. Give me one. I'm. I'm a big fan of the fact that stories are here to make people feel something. Now, we could get into the science of it and the structure and what a story is and what it isn't and how it's going to transform and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, a story is to make you feel something. But in business, which is where I spend most of my time, a story isn't just to make you feel something because that's just entertainment, right? We're not just here to be Aaron Sorkin. We've got to get people to do something. So you want people to feel something so that they do something. So the thing that's influenced me the most, really for a number of years, is Daniel Goleman's work all the old emotional intelligence stuff from his book in the late 90s. When you boil down how many emotions there are, 
that's what gets me out of bed whenever no matter what it is i'm doing if i'm writing a story a speech if i'm trying to coach some folks if we're here to say story makes you feel something we need to become students of emotions so we need to understand what are the emotions that are going to get people excited right to to vote for me to use their voice to to go off and impact and do things and change the world in some small way so you start getting into the science of how actually there's only eight emotions. We could unpack them if you like, but I love Daniel Goldman's work because whilst it looks like there's thousands and thousands of emotions, there's only eight core emotions. There's five negative ones, two positive ones, and there's only one emotion that can change people's minds. So when we talk about influence, which you're definitely amazing at, trying to unpack what influence is comes down to one emotion and that as soon as I discovered that, that just knocked my socks off. And that shaped all of the coaching and the writing that I've done ever since. So come on, um, you, come on, the punchline. What is, what is the emotion? Surprise, the potentiator. So we have five survival emotions. Let's think of it. So Julia, at the moment, for all of the folks listening to this now, a lot of people are going to be overwhelmed. They might be working from home. They might be leading a big business. They might be doing a startup. Data seems to show at the moment, let's drop some data just to get out of the way. Four out of five professionals overwhelmed, underprepared for the challenges they're facing over the next few years. As a result, about three quarters of folks make major strategic decisions with their gut. Um, it's actually, they, they say their gut or their heart, but what they really mean is a different part of their brain, right? They're talking about limbic systems and amygdala, kind of where our emotions come from. But then you'd kind of combine that with insights from places like MIT, where they're suggesting the average professional has about 70,000 thoughts a day. So you're like, okay. I mean, most of them are just automatic, right? Uh, and we can't, certainly not for the men, we can't multitask and do many at the same time. But of the 70,000 thoughts a day that we have, about 90% are the same as yesterday, and around 80% of them, it is suggested, are negative. So you think, okay, that's that's really interesting now because I'm I'm in business. People are overwhelmed. They've got a naturally negative mindset. I want to influence them. I want to tell them a story, makes them feel this so that they do that. So I need to understand that emotional mindset they've got. So the five negative emotions, they call them survival emotions, fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness. Right? Fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness. So you, we talked about Al Gore before. You mentioned Nancy Duarte, who we both completely in love with. You know, you look at things like climate change and inconvenient truth, and you could argue that anger could be a positive emotion, like Greta, right? People are pissed off, do things. The problem is that the, the psychology of that isn't sustainable. It doesn't last long. It's great to get people to act quickly, but that negative mindset wails off really, really quick. Attachment emotions are different. So the two attachment emotions, love and trust, Daniel Goldman bundles together, and joy and excitement. So we all want to be trusted advisors. We all want people to fall in love with our message or, you know, love marks with our brand. So we're speaking to folks that have a negative mindset, right? Survival emotions. We want them to have a positive mindset, to love what it is that we do. So we've got this amazing transfer of value and emotion to the audience that we're trying to inspire and influence. How do we do that? You surprise them. And you can think back, like everyone that's listening now, think to, your favorite TV show that you saw for the first time, your favorite book, a movie that you've gone back to a bunch of times, you know, favorite speech, like whatever the thing is that's really inspired you, favorite bumper sticker. The first time I guarantee that you came across that message, it will have surprised you in some way. <sighs> Never thought about it like that. 
oh my gosh, that's completely changed my worldview on X, Y, and Z. And surprise is like the magic ingredient. I mean, you call it epic storytelling, right? It's like it's the magic ingredient of epic storytelling. Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite writers. He says these four words that you care about as an author. And then what happened? Because if the audience is thinking, and then what happened, they're surprised and they've got radically high levels of dopamine. So they're on the edge of their seat wondering what happens next. That's the position you want to be in. I want to just unpack that for a second. So, you know, you're you're going to give a presentation or you're working on messaging or you're working on a bit, whatever it is that you're doing. So how do we reverse engineer for surprise? Are we, is it the first thing that happens? Is it the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Is it the first story that we tell has to end with everybody sitting there going, and then and then what happened? Like, how do you reverse engineer for surprise? It, I mean, it could be all of those things. And the danger that we have, um, I mean, as storytelling coaches, as people that are trying to influence presenters, the danger is that we go out with these kind of formulate templates of, oh, here's the answer. Use this framework. And there's many of them that we could cite that we won't out of respect. But there's not obviously one size fits all, right? Because this isn't about what we want to say. This is about what the audience needs to hear. There's a great line from the leadership coach, John Maxwell. He says, at the end of the day, people are not persuaded by what you say, but by what they understand. And the reason I love that is because we need to have obsessive amounts of research and intelligence about the audience that we're speaking to. Don't just be passionate about sharing the thing with this audience and, you know, we've got to get all the body language and the words and get our presentation slides in order. You know, that's great. That's That takes you up to like, you know, the top 10%. But if you want to be in the top 1% of communicators, you're looking at not a passionate interest in the audience, like an obsessive amount. When you start looking at the Simon Sinek's of the world and like why they're good, so Ken Robinson, Barack Obama, you know, JFK is my favorite speaker, obsessive amounts, right? Sometimes 10 hours per minute, giving a 20 minute speech might take 200 hours to prepare it. If I'm writing a message, if it's 30 minutes, the first thing that pops in my head, this is gonna take 30 hours to write this 30 minute. Cody Keenan, who we both love as well, very, very similar mindset, right? So part of that research, all of that prep is obsessing over what does this audience care about so much that's going to surprise them. Now, I need to really, really understand them. I need radical amounts of empathy, right? Speechwriters would call that pathos, the emotional argument. It's where empathy and sympathy and pathetic comes from. But if I've got these radical amounts of empathy, so I know exactly what's going to land with the audience, now I know what they're not going to expect. But that might mean like forensic intelligence. That's like putting my investigative journalist hat on and doing 10 hours of research on this audience for what they don't expect. And some people might just look, oh, just tell me the demographics, who's in the room, age, experience, roughly where they're at, you know, is there 100 people? Great. Well, yeah, but of the 100 people, there might only be two people in that room that you actually need to influence. You know, then we could get into the laws of movements. But so, OK, so of those two people, I want to know everything respectfully that I can. With, you know, so if they've shared stuff on stage somewhere and they've talked about kids and sports teams and universities and political bias and colors, I've used it in many speeches, phrases that people think they've invented themselves. I've mirrored that back to them. So my presentation feels like they've written it. You know, that 
that's what surprises them. Sometimes it's the first thing out of your mouth. Comedians are often good at that. Sometimes if you've got the attention of the audience and the expectations are set properly, it's the last thing that you say. And it's the big reveal that you have the surprising ending. Sometimes it's right in the middle, but you end up with either, I like to say it's elephants and black swans. So the elephant in the room is sometimes a surprise, which we know that in advance. We know why they're pissed off. We know why they don't like us. We know the thing we're not supposed to talk about, but it's like the unwritten thing. Well, let's talk about it. If that's the thing that is in the back of their minds, that's exactly what we go out with straight away. But to use a really great um, Australian term, the black swans, right? Nobody used to think black swans were around. And then when they were discovered, Western Australia, 16th century, now all of a sudden everything changes. The black swans are real, like dragons and unicorns, right? So if you're halfway through a presentation and you've got some sort of interaction with the audience, or even if you're just reading body language and you can see, oh, I was going to give this presentation, but based upon what they're responding or the questions they're asking or an insight they've just shared that I didn't even know was true. Now, wow, this has changed everything. Now I've got to give that presentation and that's going to surprise, it's going to surprise me as well, but it's going to surprise them because you look at the power shift of the speaker and the audience and you start really getting into the neuroscience of like, what does it mean to have that emotional connection and to transfer that emotion backwards and forwards when you know exactly what hormones, do you know what I mean? What hormones you're influencing? Mm. That's, that's the good stuff. That's where you start to. I want, I want to just go like elephants and black swans for a second, because there's so much, in that. So one of the things that, that I teach when I do storytelling workshops or presentation skills workshops is about the elephant. Right. Speak to speak to the elephant in the room. And the question that I get, so for anyone who's listening who, you know, you're not quite sure what an elephant in the room is, basically an elephant in the room is anything that is going on in your audience's head that's preventing them from hearing you. And it might be, you know what, they always do this or, you know, I'm not listening to a word they say until we cover this particular topic because I'm not interested until this particular topic. It, it, it's usually a story about you, your message, what you have to say, the company you represent that prevents them from listening to what you're saying. So that's the, ele that's the elephant in the room. And the question that I get often when I talk about naming the elephant in the room, because once you've named the elephant in the room, you can get it out of the room, is, well, what if it wasn't in the room in the first place? What if I just put it there? What if by naming it, I've put it in the room and it never existed to begin with? How, how do you answer that question? But isn't that back to that level of understanding with your audience? You know, when I listen, I listen to actors that give a lot of presentations about, um, you know, drama and it's how you have charisma and presence and gravitas on stage and things. And one of the phrases that I heard doing some coaching was, um, our jobs, we're all storytellers. Our jobs is to tell stories as fast and as compellingly as possible. And remember that the audience is always the hero, right? Which is not, that's controversial. A lot of people don't believe that. If you're making art, the audience is probably not the hero. You're probably the hero. But within that, you're looking at the level of obsession with the audience. I will know what the elephant is because of the insights that I've seen. Now, I'm in the business world. So that might be we failed on a delivery. It might be that the budget's just been cut by 70% and you're still pitching almost the same project that you was pitching before it was cut. The elephant in the room might be, why did you not do it for the discounted price before? 
you know that i mean there's a million and one things it could be we don't want to work with you anymore it could be we really really want to work with you but we've got you know challenges with x y and z someone's about to leave we're not allowed to talk about the person that's going to leave that like there's 101 things but i would know that in advance if i know the audience well enough that the elephant is going to take the journey somewhere else and that's a whole different discussion but it may be that that comes off in the small talk with the moderator with the person leading the session with you know with the most senior person in the room the amount of times i've used storytelling techniques to craft small talk to try and get these insights before you even go into the room or onto the stage to do the thing people don't look at that you know because the first thing like we did we've been chatting for ages before we press record you, you look at the the, the the small talk before it which i have adhd so i'm terrible at small talk anyway but that can be used to make sure you're properly refining the craft of what you're about to say because you can be very strategic about the small talk where i'm looking for like the hooks of what are the anchors for my presentation is this going to work should i say that should i not use that um, i got in trouble once for manipulating an audience because i didn't do enough research we could talk about that and it didn't go it didn't go well in my mind but it didn't have the outcome i wanted but i didn't realize how much i manipulated the audience but you used a really interesting phrase, Julie, when you talked about naming the elephant, you said topic, right? You know, what about this topic that we're about to discuss? And topic is one of the boxes that I have in this thing called the story canvas when you're doing all this research. And there's 18 boxes that have to be filled in. And a lot of it is just about the audience and the mindset, the psychology. But one of them is what's the topic. Now, what people think is, okay, what are we talking about? Topic today, digital transformation or climate change or whatever, right? Not that it might be, but the topic is really, am I really pissed off about talking about this? Because I've given this presentation 20 times, nothing has changed. It's an annual review. You've gone back to the team. The team knows what you're going to say. And you're just like, you know, we all, that's the elephant in the room, right? Nothing's going to change. I'm going to try and inspire you all. You're all going to go back to how things were. Nothing's going to. So make that the elephant. And the first thing that you talk about is this is why I'm so bored with talking about this topic. Now, all of a sudden, the audience is going to be like, sorry, hold on. You know, we know roughly what you're going to say because we know what that maybe this sales meeting is how it's planned out. But, oh, this isn't going to be a normal presentation, is it? Because the speaker's bored with it. And we've, we've still got 29 minutes left of the 30 minutes. So like, shit, where, where's this going to go? Now I'm on the edge of my seat. Well, that's surprise. That goes back to the surprise piece that you were talking about. Talk to me about the the black swan a little bit more. So I've heard you. I've heard you talk about black swan before, and then once you find it, go all in. Tell me, like, talk. What do you mean by when you find it, go all in? Yeah, I like it a lot. And you know, good artists copy, great artists steal, right? I've blatantly stolen this um, from Christopher Voss from the FBI. He talks like he talks about tactical empathy. So you talk about radical empathy, right? Understanding your audience. Chris Voss talks about tactical empathy in his book. So tactical empathy is like the emotional application of how I'm dealing with an audience that might not necessarily like me. So if you're negotiating like he might be with the Taliban and there's a journalist about to get their head cut off and there's a mission critical environment and you need to have that value exchange when it needs to feel like a win-win. I've got to have empathy with my audience to get an outcome. People that feel something, do something. But I fundamentally disagree with everything you are doing right now. 
with your point of view, with what's physically going on. With all. So he calls it tactical empathy. It's like this tactical application of emotional intelligence. And he talks about it in his book, Never Split the Difference. So I love that because there is a level, I mean, without being too grandiose, mission critical environments for you could be getting some funding, selling a deal that you desperately need, right? Trying to get a business partner, trying to recruit some talent. Mission critical environment could be you in your house. It could be, you know, asking someone to marry you. It could be getting an outcome in business. But then you've also got audiences that you're sometimes working with that might not like you or you might not agree with and you need to influence. I mean, politics has a big play within this, right? So you look at tactical empathy. Now, that's really this understanding of the audience, which feeds into the black swans. Because what, what Chris would talk about, which I think is just as relevant in business, at some point during the negotiation, something might come up that you didn't know before that negotiation started because he never asks questions and he gets people talking and massively oversharing. And he's very proud of that. The techniques, you know, mirroring and labeling, you know, oh, it feels like you said this. It sounds like you said that. Or you repeat the last three words that they said with an upwards inflection. You know, I really don't like it when, when Jackie did that. When Jackie did that, you're not asking any questions. But people love to talk. So you're bringing all these things and these kind of hostage negotiation techniques that he uses. Great for storytelling, brilliant for influence. When they start sharing, they'd be like, well, actually, we, we did chat about this last week and we were, we were thinking that we've been working with you for three years and it's probably about time we move on. We just didn't know how to say it. That's the black swan. So now the pitch that I'm about to give you doesn't apply anymore. Because we've got to deal with... So the black swan and the elephant's the same thing. Just the black swan. Now that it's appeared and the black swan is real, now that's my elephant. Now I've got to deal with it, like you said, because otherwise they're not going to listen to anything else that I said. So the art of a really great communicator, especially in mission-critical environments when you want to influence, is find the black swan or make sure that there aren't any. Do you know what I mean? Because then we can look at how we drive towards the outcome that we really need for that win-win situation. When that black swan appears, let's just say that we haven't found it beforehand and it's suddenly, and the, you know, we've, we've all, I think, had those moments where you think you're in one meeting, turns out actually you're in another meeting altogether where you, you're, you're about to have one conversation and now, okay, this is, I'm not having that conversation and now oh, we're having this one. Now we're going down that road. Okay. Yeah. Now we're going down this road. What's your, how do you coach people to handle those moments? Because you can see mastery at work there, right? Like you can see somebody who can go, okay, we'll change lanes. You need to know your shit really, really, really well. You need to know it inside out. Tony Robbins does a lot of coaching on communication and, um, you know, love him or hate him, right? He's a bit of a Marmite character for a lot of people. And he did a lot of leadership coaching when I was at Salesforce. And there's a phrase that he uses a lot, which is, you know, um, don't practice till you get it right. You practice it until you can never get it wrong. Now, if you look at the mindset of Navy SEALs, of elite athletes, of Top Gun instructors, astronauts at NASA, you know, you're looking at, you talk about mastery, right? That's one of the, the things you talk about in Influencer Code a lot. Like that level of mastery is I know this stuff so well that I'm ready to respond when something happens. Now, if you don't know your stuff that well, what are you going to be focused on? I'm looking at presenter view. If I've got, God forbid, you're using PowerPoint and you're reading, you know, your notes off a thing. Or if, you know, you've got your notes, maybe it's on record cards, maybe it's the thing, maybe you've got prompts around you, maybe it's virtual, 
post-it notes all over your screen, whatever the thing's going to be, right? If I am so obsessed with getting my words right and not looking like an idiot and getting my facts right and getting the thing in the right order and not getting the stats in the wrong place, I have no emotional energy to obsess over what the audience is thinking and responding and how they're saying. So that even if I ask a rhetorical question, right, say you even ask an actual question and they answer it and they give you the black swan and we've all seen it, what happens? The speaker goes, oh, that's a really great question. Let's, let's bring that up afterwards. We'll have some Q&A at the end. Or they might even nod if they're trying to be a little bit respectful to maybe one of their team on the front. Oh, could you make a note of that? We'll make sure we share that with everybody afterwards. Well, great, but you've lost the audience, right? Because you weren't prepared for that. Whenever I'm giving presentations, even if I've got a 10 slide deck, I might have nine other presentations open and I know where they are and they might be on an iPad at the side of me disconnected from my computer so I can see which presentation is which. Just in case an elephant comes up, I can pivot and now I'm going to that deck. So now we're going to tell this story instead. I can only do that if I'm really confident in my subject matter, if I'm confident in myself, which I struggle with because I have imposter syndrome and a million other things. But then I've rehearsed it to death. It's Tiger Woods at the top of his backswing when his dad used to let off an air horn, right, to distract him. It's Chris Hadfield doing a spacewalk, right, and somebody's just cut a finger off or the airlocks or he's got water in his eyes. That's a black swan. Now everything's changed. Oh, shit, now what? You know, and you have to be well prepared and trained for that eventuality. And communicators don't do that. They know just enough. Oh, yeah, I've read the script. Um, yeah, present a view. Think about Barack Obama, right? Read everything off AutoQ pretty much. And Cody Keenan wrote a lot of it and John Favreau. But he practiced it and knew it so well, right? And he was a better speechwriter than all of them put together, to be fair. But he knew it so well that it never felt like it was off an AutoQ. And that's where people go wrong. I script everything. I write all of the stories longhand, you know, and just so that I've got a level of obsession. How many times am I going to say the word but? Where's the three syllable words? Where's the emotional words? Where's the data? If I speak at 130 words a minute, am I going to be able to fit this story in the first six minutes, which is what their attention span is going to be? Because if I don't get to it to 10 minutes, I've lost the audience. It's like that's what's going to be going on in the back of your mind if you want to be good. But it's a real focus of being match fit, right? Like what does it what does it take to be match fit? And being match fit, I used to have this incredible personal trainer. She was um Muay Thai, like five foot and nothing, bald Chinese, badass personal trainer. And we used to go out and it'd be dark and we'd be doing she'd be doing Muay Thai. I'd just be flailing around in the dark. Um and I remember saying to her once, she was like, um, you know, go over there, practice your kicks. And I said, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit slippery there. And the, and the floor's a bit uneven, like the paving's a bit uneven. Can we, can I go over and do it over here instead? And she just looked at me and she was like, you know, you don't, you don't get to choose. Like this is, if you're in a, in a situation where you need to fight, which obviously I am never in, you know, you, you don't get to choose your environment. You don't get to choose what's going on. Like, I mean, let's take it up to the wider sphere here. You don't get to choose the economy. You don't get to choose the questions you get asked. You don't get to choose where did where the audience wants to take this. You don't 
you don't get to choose all these things. You just have to be match fit enough to know that you can handle it. As in you show up over and over and over again and do it over and over and over again. How many hours practice would you put in for one presentation? I mean, it depends what it is, but you make a great point. I mean, these, these books weren't strategically placed, but, you know, Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership, you know, looking at leadership and tactics. I, I spend quite a bit of time with folks in the military because of that mindset that you need to have. You need to be prepared for any eventuality. Like a Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink could say good. It's his favorite word. You know, this has failed, good, gives us a chance to do it better. Didn't get enough money, good. I'm going to get a chance to be more creative and find it. Like the response to everything is that level of extreme ownership, of mastery of your environment. No matter what happens, I'm going to take ownership. It's my fault. It's all on me. It's not to do with anybody else. I'm not going to blame anybody. The tech failed. The amount of times I've turned up at presentations, the seating's not where I expected. The microphone didn't work. I've got to have a different type of headphone that I hate. The clicker. I do a lot of live demos. And I'm always obsessive. I never share slides anyway. But a lot of that is because people would lose their mind if they saw them, but also because of the style that they're feeling like they've got a say into how they can tell me to do my presentation. But if I'm doing live demos and voice demos, I need to be in control. And often with big arenas, it's right at the back where the ABAV and the sound team is. I can't have that. I need you to run, you know, a 40 meter HDMI cable to the, oh no, we can't do that. Well, I can't do my presentation. I need to be prepared for good. Well, I'll tell a different story then, right? Instead of just losing my shit and go, oh no, this is terrible. This is awful. It's now all gone. You need that, right? And that's why whenever I'm looking at, so back to my story canvas, which is really my research page, that's about how much time to dedicate to each presentation. So I generally work on an hour per minute anyway. Um, if it's a really, really, really big presentation, it might be 10 hours per minute, which to anyone listening is going to sound excessive, but it's not excessive. If that is your, the politicians would call it a stump speech. I have one version of my speech. This is my story. Jane Goodall has one. Preachers have one. Preachers often joke. They have one sermon and they have 52 different ways of saying it. Right. So you've got, um, spent a bunch of time with Hillsong. That's a whole different story. <laughs> so when you start looking at that obsessive amount of um, intelligence on the audience and mastery of what your thing is, how long is it going to take me to do my core story? And then what I need to be good at is having variations of that story that can play out depending upon whatever the circumstances are. But it might take me a couple of hundred hours. It took Simon Sinek 200 hours to write his TED Talk, the start with why one. You know, Brené Brown wasn't far off. Ted often says it's 10 hours per minute. You know, you have Devin Marks on recently. Devin's amazing. He's trying to get that level of obsession with his speakers. And that's what I take. And when people say, oh, I've not got the time. So well, you have, you, first of all, you're spending your time in the wrong places and you're not being intelligent in the way that you're managing stuff. But if this is important to you, you will find the time to have that core message that you know inside out, no matter what, you know, and you could recite it and you could package it and slice it up any different way and weave in all these extra anecdotes. Like now, everything that I'm saying to you is probably, is like little, little chunks of things that I'm pulling from a bank. You know, I'm just trying to find the connecting tissue to try and share some of them. And they call it mind palaces. Mind palace is an actual thing. 
of how you like you physically imagine yourself it's like extreme visualization of somewhere i know really well and i might be walking into a lounge and there might be a poster on the wall with a quote on it and then i'm going to walk over to where the cocktail cabinet is and my favorite whiskey and on the back of the whiskey label it's going to say something else and then there's going to be a book next to it that's going to say something else but you're almost you're walking your mind through a place you know really well which is connecting the tissue of lots of different presentations or sound bites or quotes which you have to do if you're good and you're on your feet especially if they're journalists there but the brain has such an amazing capacity for remembering stuff and we always think, oh, we can't, I won't remember that. No, you just haven't practiced enough. You haven't rehearsed enough to embed that, you know, on your heart and in your brain so that you can you can take your brain on these journeys when the black swans happen. I'm just thinking back to the, the part where we, we, you were just talking about not having the time when people say, you know, 10 hours per minute, who has the time? I was in a room recently with um, a particular, particular organization and it was their kind of top execs and they all had a particular change they were trying to drive within the organization um and they were there to figure out how to message this change that they were trying to drive there was 10 10 in a room and we went around the room and I said you know how long have you spent thinking about what you want to say here and the message that you that you need to develop and they were like well I probably spent you know I spent an hour spent a couple of hours spent a half a day whatever it was and I said right I want to go around the room Tell me one by one, what's the combined, what's the financial impact of the change you're trying to drive here? Like, let's do a combined financial impact. And you went to one, you know, and, and he was in charge of these huge icebreaker vessels. And he was like, oh, it's, it's at least a billion dollars difference that this change would make. And I was like, okay, well, there's a billion. And, and it was a spectacular room because each of them were trying to drive changes that were worth incredible amounts of money on the bottom line. So this is just financial outcome, let alone human impact outcome. And you look at the combined bottom line of that room and you think, why on earth would you not obsess about getting this absolutely right. Why on earth would you not put in the hours to get this word perfect? So it's in your bones. Like it's, I often talk about muscle memory because when you get on stage and I don't know how you coach people through this, but you know, when you get on stage and that front part of your brain, you know, the adrenaline kicks in, the front part of your brain kind of does a, a flip-flop panic. Um, and you know, the importance of having it in your muscles by that stage, having practice to the point where it's in your muscle memory. So that when the adrenaline kicks in and your brain kind of does the, you know, it's there ready to go and you can just move with it. How, how do you teach people to handle? That's actually really interesting. How do you teach people to handle that first kind of five minutes or so as they settle? Some of the best comedians, you know, they'll come out. There's always a thing that you should have your best line last and you building up to a thing. Comedians also have a thing called nested loops, you know, that they'll set a story in motion and then they'll keep coming back to a phrase or something that happened within that story. Billy Connolly is probably like the best out there. Michael McIntyre a little bit. Then Jerry Seinfeld does it super well. But they're trying to, they're building up to something. And story often does that. Story's always building up to something. Like Nancy Duarte will talk about the denouement, the, the, the moment. Here's, here's the world as it is and the world as it could be. The world as it is and the world as it could be. And we've got the transitions. Right, hero's journey, conflict and obstacles and villains and dark night of the soul and 
save the cat and all of that. And you end up with the thing at the end. But a lot of the best comedians are go, I'm going to come out with my best joke first and I'm going to set the bar so high. Now I need to keep the audience there, you know, and, and it, there's like a level of excellence that you try. So I often try and coach people about, well, let's start with that. Now, I did this as an exercise recently. I spend, I love your exercise about the, the value, the economic value. It's brilliant. I try and do that with sales folks and consultants. And I'm looking at a room and like there's half a billion dollars of pipeline in this room for what we're about to go through. We're looking at the economic impact of this story. And that's when it state transcends marketing and comms because now the CFO is interested and the CIO and the CEO because these stories have got value. And it's not an effing soft skill. It's a really, really, really hard skill. You need to massively overinvest in, right? You need to be on retainer at all the biggest companies to do the thing with personal coaching. And right, we need to obsess over it. So you're looking at like that level of excellence to start with to try and understand, well, first of all, we need to get there. And there was a team that I was with recently. And they, they started off at number 10, right? They were all out. And, um, and they just kept going. And the, the speed and the volume and the monotone and the data, and they were so excited and they were really passionate. And they were like, I could see them in the back of their minds thinking, Jeremy's gonna love this, right? And it was just like, duh, duh, duh. and I got to the end of it and I was like freaking exhausted. And like, as an audience, you're just like, we need to just take a moment <laughs> to acknowledge what's just happened over the last 33 minutes. It was 33 minutes. Uh, probably 200 words a minute. I was on this Navy SEAL call with Jocko Willink last night. He was speaking at 1.250 words a minute. 250. Barack Obama's 85. Right now, we're probably like 100, 120. So you've got like, and it was like that. It was just machine gun words all the way through. And they completely, which was great because they got everything in, but they basically did an hour presentation in 30 minutes, which isn't the key. But really, when you're trying to coach them there, it's like, okay, now we need to look at not what you said, but what the audience understands. So this isn't about, you know, you, you can shoot a rabbit with a cannon, right, as they say, but it's great. You get the job done. There's just no rabbit left. You've like obliterated the audience. Barack Obama did this with Cody Keenan in his book. I don't know if he spoke to you about this when you did the Grace um, podcast um, a few weeks back. Obama told him, go and listen to some Coltrane or some Miles Davis. Find me the silences. Because Cody was trying so hard early on in his career to write this really impressive presentation for Barack Obama. And it was like everything that you can put in. And he's kind of stepped back and he's really open about it in the book. Super vulnerable. It's why he's just the most beautiful person. Amazing, amazing guy. And, he's, and, and Obama was like, look, this is a brilliant, but you're at 10 all the time. You need to go away, listen to some jazz, go and have a pizza and a beer or some bourbon and find me the silences. And what he was asking him to do was to find that cadence of, I'm going to start out maybe at a 10, 75 second, opening, cold open, as we call them, get their attention, but then take me on a journey and I'm going to go quiet. I'm going to go slow. I'm going to share some vulnerability maybe, but then I'm going to uplift the audience and tell you the thing. I've never shared this with anybody else before because we're the only company in the world that can do this because surprise, right? And that quiet, loud, quiet, loud from number five to number 10, taking them on that emotional journey is when we start looking at 
dopamine and oxytocin and endorphins and the qualities of a brilliant speaker. So Ken Robinson's favorite, famous TED talk made them laugh every 29 seconds. He was taking them on this journey. Now that was a really hardcore presentation about educational reform, top TED talk of all time by miles. And yet he found a lot of silences. So I think that's the thing with a lot of business presenters now, they are so keen to squish everything that they know to know how smart they are. And they need to take that level of humility of this isn't about you. This is about your audience. You know, I was given an assembly to, to my daughter's school the other day about climate change, six year olds, right? toughest audience I've spoken to in years. I'm talking about ocean science. I'm talking about AI and climate change and a robot boat that's done the first trip across the Atlantic that's ever happened. It's like this IBM boat that was built called the Mayflower. And I'm speaking to six-year-olds. So I can't do my normal CEO presentation because I can't even say like, well, 72% of the ocean of the earth is covered in water, is ocean, you know, or you know, 98% of all the water is salt water and like, you know, because they don't get that. Now that would be my normal presentation, but I've got it. What's the mindset? What's going to, how are they? So, okay, everybody, how far can a polar bear swim? Right. And now we can talk about the ocean and seals and icebergs and melting and they're going too far and ice caps and, the, you know, ecosystem destruction, mammals. It's like that's the same thing in business. You know, it's like we've got to have that level of empathy. It's back to what you were talking about before with that understanding of the audience, that influence. I think about some of the Impact 45 stuff that you do. You're looking at like you've got to take the audience on this journey, but there's going to be, according to Harvard to say, minimum of five decision-making styles. You want to get them to feel something so they do something, right? So we need to understand what's going to make them do something. So I've got to understand decision-making. There's five decision-making styles, right? And they have names for them, charismatic, visionary, follower, whatever. Then there's four different types of companies. They call them company archetypes. They teach this on their MBA program. Okay, so five decision-making styles, four companies. Then is my audience, the person I'm really trying to influence, are they introvert or extrovert? Am I introvert or extrovert? That's going to be a different type of presentation. And we're kind of skirting around political correctness, but once you start looking at genders and how people identify, and you look at male, female, heightened levels of oxytocin, you know, gender, you know, non-binary, you start looking at, you know, five times four times two, introvert, extrovert, male, female, plus, you know, times two. You look at minimum 80 versions of a story. You know, five decisions, four archetypes, male, female, introvert, extrovert. Then you take on, do they like us? Do they not like us? Is it radical empathy, tactical empathy? 160 versions of the same story. That's when you realize, oh shit, we need Julie in all of our meetings because we don't understand <laughs> how to repurpose this pitch in 160 different ways. You think there's one talk track for that deck? No, there's 160 versions of it. And as the communicator, when I'm spending my first six minutes, I've got my big cold open, but really what I'm doing is my brain's on overdrive, trying to look for the hooks, which is going to resonate with the audience. What's not, do they like data? Do they want a stat? Did they like the quote? Did they laugh? Did it just crickets? Was there no, was it silence? You know, all of that initial, you know, thin slicing, psychologists call it blink. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about it. 
like all of that intelligence going to shape the rest of my presentation based upon what I get out of the open. But it also takes the ability while you're in communication, while you're either on stage or you're in a room or wherever you happen to be when you're communicating, it takes the ability to step outside your own experience and step into the experience of the room, which is hard to do when you're just, you know, that monologue, you know, you described it earlier, you know, oh my goodness, um, am I dying here? Am I winning? Is, who's that person? They're smiling at me. Oh, thank you for smiling. Who's that? Oh my, he's just picked up his phone. He's, they've just stood up. They're, stood up. They're walking towards the back. Do they need the toilet? Are they just leaving? Am I terrible? Like it takes the ability to shut that down and step outside of your own experience and into the experience of the people in the room. How do you, how have you learned to do that? Um. <laughs> That I think that one of them is the mission of what is it we're aiming towards. But I think some of it is also trying to understand how much do you believe in what it is that you're saying? You know, I love, I love Simon Sinek's quote, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people, um, the goal in business isn't to sell to people who need what you have. It's to work with people who believe what you believe There's a belief system. Do we believe what it is that we're saying is going to change things? So there is a level of, if everybody in the room hates me, but I absolutely believe in this thing, then there's just, then it's, it's evangelism. They might not do something. You might have inspired them. You might have influenced them somewhere down the line. There is a level of that. But let's just come back to that belief thing in just one second. Because I remember when I first started out on stages and I was looking at those people with their phones and I was, I'm a, I'm a terrible presenter. I'm monotone. I probably speak too fast. I, I don't like doing presentations. I like being behind the scenes. I want to make other people do their thing well. I really, really like that. But I was looking out on the audiences and these are some big, big audiences, right? Everyone's on their phone and I'm working with other people and I'm like, oh no, this is so bad. They've switched off. And, you know, over 10 years ago, South by Southwest, it was a massive crowd. And, and it dawned on me, everybody's tweeting. Everybody's, they're not on my, they're not bored. They're sharing and then what I started to do was have an iPad. Now, it doesn't work anymore because Twitter doesn't work in the way that it used to. But I started to have my iPad with the hashtag open on the lectern next to my notes. So I demanded a lectern, even if I'm going to be roaming around the stage, so that I can see in real time exactly what the audience is saying. So first of all, do they like it? Secondly, do they not like it? Thirdly, is there any black swans that I don't know about? Because they might put that on a hashtag of when they're, sh oh, I'm in this talk with at Jeremy Way and he's just said this and he's full of shit because, great, that's the next thing I'm about to say to address the elephant in the room who's got some anonymous name title because they don't, you know, it's like, well, let's call it out. Let's do the thing, right? Let's have this, and the audience will be, come on, you know, we're, we're really up for this. So there is a level of trying to understand where they're at in relation to what it is that you're saying. But if we come back to belief, I was thinking about this this morning when I was um, when I was stalking you and I was looking through some of the stuff that you've done. I was looking at Impact 25, Impact 45, right? And you've influenced, you know, you say like senior influencers, big people, 1,200 people plus. I'm sure it's a lot more than that now. But I'm thinking like, okay, well, what does it mean to have influenced that many people? Because some of those just are a, a small handful of people in a room and some of them might have been an entire audience. But if you look at like the laws of how movements start, and if you're genuinely trying to help people find their voice or change the world in some sort of positive way, 
right? So the world's better for everybody around them. Those 1,200 people are going to have a reach of 34,000, and those 34,000 will have a reach of 9.8 million, which is the combined population of probably Sydney and Melbourne, right? So I'm thinking of the the 3.5% rule. It comes back to 3.5% of any given group can influence everybody else to change. It's science, it's how civil rights, abolition, anti-apartheid, climate change, LGBTQ+, women's vote, like you go all the way back. Generally, Erica Chenoweth did a whole thing about it at Harvard, nonviolent civil disobedience, three and a half percent. If they're the right people, and if they've got the right tools, and if it's the right timing, it's the right time for the movement to happen, right? Black Lives Matter, Me Too. So when you start looking at that, knowing you've got a really powerful message to share that's going to influence all of those people. I look at your 1,200 people and think, you know, well, they're 3.5% of the 34,000. And those people, if they go on to influence other people because of what you've done to impact their lives, they're going to influence almost 10 million. And that's what gets me out of bed when I'm looking at that crowd, especially if there's just nothing. And it sometimes happens in the Nordics. Sometimes it happens in european audiences that you just nothing they might be thinking this is the best presentation i've ever heard in my freaking life but they won't laugh they won't smile and they just rabbit in headlights they're just staring at you and you're losing your shit thinking this isn't working i'm dying and they're all thinking no this is amazing keep going so either i've got the belief system that's going to drive me because i believe so much in what it is that i'm doing but there also needs to be a level of and this is where looking at preachers kind of becomes helpful. There is also a level of understanding what are the people in a room actually doing? You know, and if it's in a boardroom of 12, 15 people, you can tell if they're on email or Slack. You can tell if they've got bored and checking their phone. So that might not be respectful to call out with a very senior person, but something I'm doing wrong, extreme ownership, right? This is on me. Something I'm doing wrong isn't connecting with this person in some way. Why? What am I doing wrong? And I need to think about that really quickly to pivot. So I'm probably going to ask them a question, which might be the elephant, you know, or I'm trying to draw a black swan out of them. So they put their phone down and they get engaged. They're back in the room. And now they felt like they've shaped the presentation. I loved what you said about the ripple effect there. I think there's something that we think about very rarely, which is, you know, it's not just the people in front of us or the people in front of them. It's, our ability to craft this message in a way that carries. So it's clear, it's succinct, it's tangible, it's got emotional hooks, it's got a clear call to action, like all of the the mechanics of it so that somebody can take it from us and pass it on to somebody else and pass it on to somebody else. And when I first started, I had a management agency for, for speakers, speakers and thought leaders. And when we first started, I put this electronic picture frame up on the wall in the office and I'm sure it used to drive the the team nuts. And every week I would get our events coordinator who probably felt like she had better things to do because she was organizing like 80 different flights all around the world. And I would say, can you add up all the audience members, the people that our team have been out there speaking to over the past week? So every speaker we represent, I want you to add up all the audience members from the week. And she would add them up and the, the number would change every week. And the goal was to hit 4 million, 4 million lives touched. And that lives touched just became this amazing benchmark for us as a team. 
Like if you forget why you're doing it, if someone's having a bad day, you've lo- you've lost a massive deal, you know, someone's missed a flight, you've got the timings wrong, you know, it's all coming down around your ears. You know, looking at that number, the reason, why are we doing this? Like the amount of lives touched here. And that's only the ones that we know about. Yeah, there's a lot of people be familiar with the famous Margaret Mead quote, never doubt that a small, thoughtful group of committed citizens can change the world. Why? It's the only thing that ever has. And it is. It's a really, really nice bumper sticker. But a lot of people just don't feel an attachment to that in a way that they own it. it's, It's a really great line to have. It's a gorgeous line to put on a slide. But if you start unpacking just what you were talking about then, like how many lives touched, there'll be a bunch of people listening to this podcast now they might be thinking of people that started really really small like Greta right no one's too small to make a difference they might my favorite bumper sticker quote I talk about Obama a lot sorry um you can change the world just by sharing your story so okay well we can change the world by sharing our stories and we've all got a story to tell um and we need to try and understand how to do that but you also need to then understand well what is my world like what's my audience you know it might just be me and and two of my mates well yeah but you're the three percent of a group of a hundred now who are those hundred people is that a church group is it a sports team is that the people within your service line are you in a startup is that like you know you on your own it might be 20 people that you need to inspire you know in the early days when i was working with facebook a lot of it was we had an average 140 friends if i influence those they could influence 19,800 to change. If we influence those, 2.7 million. So you look at network effects, you know. So I kind of come back to these bumper sticker quotes and think for the people listening here now, it's more, it's kind of less about Margaret Mead and, and Barack Obama. And it's a little bit more about Mother Teresa. It's like, if you really want to change the world, go home and love your family, right? What does that mean for my work family? or my sports family, you know, or, you know, whatever the community is that you might be attached to within that family. And you want to try and inspire them and you want to impact them. Well, you might start looking at that law of influence, that three and a half percent rule. And then you start getting into the space. Oh, I, I can do that. You know, I'm straight out of university. I've got no experience. I've not been around that long. You really want to influence other people to change. Say like climate, you know, Greta's 15. She wants to influence the CEO of Shell. You know, you can do that with the right movement, the right time, the right passion, the right belief and understanding that the laws of movements apply. You get the right people, you know, and and you've got the right tools and the right frameworks and the right understanding of storytelling. And then the magic word, which I love as a writer, is kairos, the fancy Greek word, K. A-I-R-O-S, translates, Al Gore uses it all the time, a supreme moment at which one simply must act, no matter how implausible or inconvenient. So Kairos, if anybody wants to Google Kairos, just go and look at Wikipedia and go down a foxhole. That's what we're looking for. The perfect time to influence an audience, to start a movement, to bring about change. And those laws come into play, and before you know it, words and ideas can change the world it's amazing you know but you have to see that you know happen and throughout your career you've seen that many times julie but for the people starting off in their career they need that belief and that level of understanding of this is what i'm aiming towards not every audience is going to like me sometimes i'm going to bomb 
Sometimes I've just got to look at it like a comedian. I'm crafting my material to see what works and what doesn't. Great. I won't use that again, you know, but testing those muscles, aren't you? Mm. And I think both of our journeys, you know, I heard you, I can't remember where I saw it, but you said that you used to want to be Sam Seaborn, which so so did I. My entire life is is modeled, modeled on him too. And, you know, your world has taken you to the world of, you know, game-changing organizations that are truly, you know, answering some of the big questions on the planet right now, such as climate change, such as food shortages. Um, what, if you had to, if I made you drill it down to kind of three things that you have learned about powerful stories, because powerful stories are an invitation, right? It's an, it's an invitation to, to progress. It's an invitation to transform. And I think I heard you say that 85% of transformations fail i.e. only 15% succeed, and that's only 2% higher odds than the casino. So I've only got 2% higher odds than going to the casino. So if stories are the invitation and the majority of our invitations fall flat, what are the core three things to remember about when you go out there, the next time you have to tell a powerful story, the next time you have to make an invitation to transform? So, yeah, I mean, that, that transformation starts a big deal because the, the purpose of story is to transform the hero. If there's no transformation, it's not a story. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens. So you can't call it a story. So there's got to be transformation. And if you look at why most transformation projects fail, it's actually lack of urgency, you know, which is back to Kairos, you know, that supreme moment, urgency. And we've got to trigger that urgency. So if I'd say I'd reinforce, we've got to be students of emotions. We've covered that, right? And surprise, got to leverage surprise in some way. We've got to go back and remember that it's not about what we say. It's about what our audience understands. So we've covered a bit of that. So the thing that I'd end on, um, if you can indulge me just for one minute, (laughs) my favorite speech, um, is it my favorite speech of all time? It's definitely the best TED talk, the best tech talk that's ever been given. And it's JFK's moon speech. Right, 12th of September, 1962. Um, we meet in an hour of change and challenge in a decade of hope and fear, you know, knowledge and ignorance. And it's just, it's the most, if anybody wants to go and watch it again, it's like, it's, it's 18 minutes, like it's a thousand seconds, right? It's a thousand seconds that genuinely changed the world. It's, we will put man on the moon within a decade. What's gorgeous, if you go and listen to it again, vast chunks of that speech could have been written last week. I actually used segments of that for Davos, the World Economic Forum in January. And, it, and it's amazing, right? It's absolutely beautiful for many reasons. And it's, it's structurally perfect. And it was written by Ted Sorensen. And Ted Sorensen was once asked, you know, how do you do such incredible speeches? You know, all great speechwriters kind of gravitate around. It's either Abraham Lincoln or it's Ted Sorensen. So they asked Ted Sorensen, how did you do that? How do you write, you know, ask not what your country, you know, these amazing speeches. So it's really simple. It's four words and five lines. It's all you need to know. You just need to know four words and five lines. And you could just do hours and months and years of studying four words and five lines. Brevity, levity, clarity and charity. Cody Keenan loves this, by the way. This is a lot of his writing has been influenced by this. Brevity, keep it short. Short, short. Al Gore speaks for 10 minutes a lot of the time with his climate presentation. JFK says if people speak for longer than 12 minutes, they just start thinking about food and sex. 
So, you know, keep it on track, right? So 12 minutes. There's a reason TED Talks are 18 minutes, and yet we have these really big, long... Anyway, so brevity. Levity, got to keep it light. Got to have some fun. I'm, I'm often dropping a Quentin Tarantino line or something from a Taylor Swift song or, or something that's relevant to the audience, right? So levity it might be a quote, Margaret Mead, right? Clarity, we need to simplify complexity. You know, you talk about being the translator in the influencer code. The idea of we need to translate this into a language that the audience understands, right? So we've got to have clarity. We've got to simplify complexity. And then charity. We've got to have a higher purpose, a belief. Why are we doing this? We want to change the world to make it better for the people in some way. We're catalysts. So brevity, levity, clarity, and charity. And if you want to Google it, you'll see the five um, lines afterwards. But the five lines really just refer to the structure of how you do what we've been talking about for the last hour, which is about structures and frameworks. You've got to have an outline. You've got to have a headline, right? What's the thing they're going to remember? You've got to have a front line. What's the first thing that you're going to say? Is it the elephant? You've got to have a sideline, which might be the anecdotes, the stories, the things that you've impacted with, something that you've done, personal experience. And then you've got to have a bottom line. What's the purpose? What's it worth? You guys are influencing a billion dollars with the you know logistical things that you've got with the icebreaker you know with like bottom line you know this story make people feel something so they do something so i think that's it i think it's emotion i think it's understanding and it's four words and five lines that's all you need to know to to do what you just did which you know to take an ocean of complexity when it comes to storytelling commercial storytelling industrial storytelling you know, purpose-driven storytelling and to kind of boil it down to, to translate it as effortlessly as you just did is, is a testament to, to your mastery. Thank you, Jeremy, so much. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. This has been so fun. We'll do another two-hour version next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. You're doing amazing work. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.